the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business podcast. I'm Cliff Taylor, standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. On today's show, we talk to economist Chris Johns about what 2021 might look like with COVID vaccines now appearing and ask him about his recent forecast that an economic boom, no less, might be in the offing. Chris Johns, uh, economics is meant to be the dismal science, but you started your column last weekend uh, with the sentence, I think we're on the verge of an economic boom. Explain yourself. Well, I'm acutely conscious of the times that we live in and how difficult it's been for everybody. Um, And I did think uh, for all sorts of reasons, actually, some optimism, an optimistic column was warranted, not just for its own sake. Not Optimism is, is, is all very well, um, and it's important, I think, to recognize that expectations can be self-fulfilling. So I think that the mood, economically at least, has become too pessimistic, and I'll explain why in a moment. Um, I think it's fairly obvious why we've all um, become gloomy. It's been an incredibly difficult year. And I'd noticed in some official forecasts, um, some stockbroker circulars, the usual list of suspects of people that do the crystal ball gazing thing, that people have becoming, are becoming, some people are becoming quite gloomy about the economic future, um, particularly the, the, the short term, feeding into the longer term. And lots of talk about economic scarring, horrible terms like that, and about how everything is just all, all doom and gloom. And I was thinking about what's going to happen in a post-pandemic world. Um, I think most obviously um, there's going to be a big short-term cyclical bounce. You can see that from a number of potential sources. You can actually see it the way it's happening in China, which is kind of in a post-pandemic situation or almost there anyway, having got it under control, where spending is, is vigorous, their stock market is through the roof, their currency is up, all the classic indicators of a boom or at least a mini one, are present in China, uh, having controlled the virus, and we think probably having got a vaccine. Uh, The scope for spending, the desire for spending is clearly there. We can see it in ourselves, to the extent that those of us have been lucky enough to preserve our incomes during this pandemic. We've all saved a lot, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. So the capacity to spend is there. The desire to spend, I know that I want to travel, and anybody I speak to, um, wants to do the things that they previously did, perhaps in a different way, um, but they want to get out into the world in some form or another, albeit on an aeroplane or having a holiday closer to home, spending money on stuff. Um, a lot, there's a lot of this about. And you, you can see this in, in terms of the capacity to spend, at least in terms of the savings data. The most recent data, or at least the data back in the mid, mid-year for, for Ireland, as I said in my column, it said that one euro out of every three earned in the state was being saved. Um, that's not sustainable. Um, it, it couldn't possibly be sustained. It's, it's unprecedented. And that money will, will be spent. Longer term, I think that beyond that cyclical, that cyclical bounce will feed on itself, as cycles often do, pump priming, all those types of jargon. And I think there's lots of other things that, provided governments do the right thing, we could see the scene set for quite a quite a sustained recovery. There's all the stimulus that we've had, all the money printing that we've had is going to have a long-lasting effect, not just a short, short-term effect. And provided that stimulus isn't withdrawn too quickly, and I don't think it will, 
because I think unlike the financial crisis, this is not going to be something that we, this stimulus that we switch off and go back to things like austerity. That just ain't going to happen. So I think central banks are going to play ball with their money printing and fiscal authorities, our own finance minister and finance ministers around the world are going to continue to spend um, and not raise taxes and not worry about deficits and debts, at least for a long period of time, until this recovery, this boom that I've talked about, is actually well entrenched. The timing, I guess, of, of this is interesting. And, and obviously, a vax, the, the appearance of three vaccines and maybe more coming down the tracks uh, have, has changed, I think, everyone's perceptions over the last, uh, over the last few weeks um, for, for the better. Do you, do you now see a possibility that this upturn could start next year, perhaps the middle of next year? Or, or what's your view on the, on the timing of this? Absolutely. Well, it's very interesting listening to the scientists. I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to prognosticate about epidemiology or anything like that. But it's been very interesting listening to the tone a lot of the scientists close to the vaccine work are actually involved in it. And they're actually holding their excitement back about how good these vaccines are. 95% efficacy rates are, are truly extraordinary. As you say, this is just the first three with 200 in, in, in development. So I was looking at the, the, the figures for the UK the other day. They've got already in stock 4 million doses of the Oxford vaccine. I'm not quite sure where the couple of million of one of the others that they've got is at the moment, but they've definitely got 4 million doses, which could... Uh, as we understand it, vaccinate up to five or six million people, depending on, on the dosage thing that, that uh, was, was interesting with the Oxford vaccine. Um, there are three and a half million people over 80 in the UK. So they could be done very quickly. And more generally, what I'm talking about is that I th- they're going to be able to vaccinate, provided they do the logistics properly. Um, and I've got a beef with the way that's being done in Ireland, by the way. Um, I think it's being done too slowly. Um, mm-hmm. They're talking about get starting the vaccination program in the UK and the United States, at least, and in Germany and elsewhere, um, within a couple of weeks, um, certainly within days of approval being granted. And that means, if you think about those figures I gave you about the number of elderly people, the number of vulnerable people, vulnerable people are going to be done quite quickly. And I think there's a, ch- that, there's a chance that that might mean that, yes, the case numbers are going to be slower to come down, but the actual numbers of people that get very sick and hospitalized, which typically are the vulnerable, by definition, are the elderly, by definition, that could change very quickly as if the vaccinations work in the way that we hope they will. So that the hospitals could empty out quite quickly. And I think that will produce a, a big change of mood. I think the mood has started to change already, actually. Mm-hmm. And that organ- uh, groups like Neffert and others are rightly warning us, you know, to be very careful about taking our foot off the brake too quickly. Uh, all those warnings are well, well made, and, and we can talk about that if you like. But I do think people are going to start, you know, people are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and people will start to, at the very least to plan this spending that I'm talking about, that as soon as, um, as, soon as they get the green light for their travel for, or for whatever else that it is that they want to do with respect to spending, I think that um, it, it will start probably at, at, at the latest, my guess, by the second quarter. I think it will be a quite a vigorous recovery through the second half of next year. And that's just the personal side of things, the consumer. I think companies, the, the, the corporate sector is going to be really interesting as well because I think they, they will have, a lot of them are taking a step back and thinking strategically about, about their businesses and what they're going to be doing and equally what they're going to be spending on, where they're going to be investing and where they're not going to be investing in. And there are all sorts of implications there as well. But I do think that that, that, that too will contribute 
to this economic upswing. So a huge, uh, as well as the health incentive to get people vaccinated quickly, there's a huge economic incentive for the Irish government to, 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 to get on and do this. But you say you're concerned about reports on the pace of, uh, of movement here. Yeah, as I understand it, and, and, and of course that might always be, be imperfect, um, the group to, um, uh, to administer to get the vaccination program going was set up or announced anyway on the 11th of November. Um, that's my that's my understanding. And there was a headline in the Irish Times on Monday that said that uh, that group, which had been announced on the 11th, so um, a couple of, almost a couple of weeks later on Monday, uh, day before yesterday, the Irish Times, the first line of the Irish Times story was that group will meet for the first time today. Mm. My jaw dropped open at that. I couldn't understand um what, why, why they would be so slow t- to meet uh, formally? One it hopes, of course, that they have been meeting informally, and that they have yeah, been doing yeah. doing doing things. But you know, if you look at places like Germany, which have got vaccination centres ready, you know their 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 logistics for for vaccinating people is go- is set up and is is good to go for when when the vials and the syringes arrive. I I, I, I don't sense that we've managed to do anything like that in Ireland. Yeah, interesting. All right, and. Um interesting few weeks as, as we as, as we watch that debate I think coming coming very much to the forefront Let, let's talk about the the consumer for a minute um people are obviously fairly beaten down after this year and as you say the savings data showed that an extraordinary one out of every three euro earned has been um, has been saved over the last few months uh, maybe compared to a normal rate of I don't know what 12 13 percent that you would see mm-hmm. in normal times have people been saving because they're afraid of the economic future or have they just been saving because they've nowhere to spend the money? It's a bit of both. Um, there's precautionary motive and, and as you say, the fact that you know you haven't been able to go to the pub um, and you've either been reluctant to go to the restaurant when they've been open um, or they've been closed and you haven't been able to travel uh, by definition. So I think it's a combination of people being very scared about the future and simply not not. Uh, not being able to spend um, people like me, and I hate to have to say this because it sounds, you know, um, it, it, it runs the risk of sounding wrong. But, but you know, the the, the lockdown has been economically speaking um, a an advantage for me. I mean, it, it's it's disadvantages in all sorts of social and human contact ways. But you know, I'm doing this without getting on a dart to come into the office um, mm. with you. And more generally, all of my activities have more or less seamlessly moved online. And my income has, hasn't been that badly affected, unlike I know a lot of other people. And I know lots of people who are like this. There are lots of people in my position who've, who've, whose incomes have not been terribly affected. And even people who, who have, have sadly been furloughed or lost their jobs, there has been assistance. So the aggregate income statistics have not collapsed the personal income statistics have not collapsed in a way that they often do during recessions. This has been an extraordinary recession in the personal incomes in the aggregate because of what finance ministers have been doing or people like me sitting pretty have been able to sustain. It, it, our incomes are, have held up. Um, it's just that we've either been reluctant and or unable to spend in the way that, that we would normally do. And does that change? I mean... To use the old cliche, is there a tipping point of that all changes? Does it, or, or is it a case where it may, perhaps it'll be more gradual as next year goes on? Because we've seen, I guess, from survey data that you know, despite the clamour for reopening the economy, a lot of people are, are have been very cautious, 
have been scared, have been very slow to go out. So, you know, will well, there be a, hopefully the a vaccine group, an, an advanced party who will who will lead yeah. us to the uh, back to the pub and the restaurant. Hopefully, the vaccine changes that, and that once you once people are vaccinated, they will feel confident that they can go to the pub, they can get on an airplane, and hopefully, the the rules will allow will allow that um, once enough people have been vaccinated. And so that's about instilling confidence in people. Um, and I think that will come back quite quickly. So I think it's a pendulum. I think the pendulum has swung one way to, to an extreme mm. and um, it'll come back. And all of the different aspects of this mean that it'll come back. It won't go back to where it was, though. It'll settle somewhere slightly. The new equilibrium will be slightly different. And that speaks to people's spending patterns. I think a lot of people will, will, will have... You know, I perhaps somewhat pretentiously said, you know, talked about an existential view of this, which is that people will be assessing their own lives and thinking about the uncertainties that the pandemic has thrown up and more generally about how, um, you know, how they want to live. And I think there will be my own, maybe this is me speaking rather than a general forecast, but I do sense that there is a lot of this about People will be more willing to to to, to live in the here and now than, than think about the future too much in the way, or at least in the way that they did in the past, and be, and I think well, that will lead to a burst of spending. Those savings rates that we talked about going up to you know thirty odd percent mm. could actually t- for a while turn negative. People okay. will not just spend their savings; they'll, they'll you know max out on the old credit cards at a time of very low interest rates. Of course, interesting. Yeah. Um... They take the advice of the song, enjoy yourself, it's later than you think. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That, that, that existential poem, absolutely. At Davy, we know your well-being should be financial as well as personal. And now when it's a little more challenging, if you're in a position where you have a pension, it's never been more important to get active. So talk to one of our trusted advisors now and we can help you find a solution for your pension needs. A solution that could help you feel better about your financial future. Let's start the conversation. Call us today or search Davy. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janey Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. Of course, there have been a, a, a group, I mean, as you say, one of the inter- interesting and, and in some senses worrying things about the recession, there, a lot of people have have seen their income unaffected or, or, or largely unaffected, but there's a smaller but yet significant group who, who have lost very significant amounts of income, job prospects. Uh, presumably, there's a big policy challenge as well in, in assisting and helping that group and getting them back into the jobs market because otherwise they're risk being left behind. Absolutely. And um, in the UK today, the, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak is going to be announcing what has been leaked to be a 4.3 billion package directed precisely at those kinds of people. And, and finance ministers everywhere, including Ireland, are going to have to do similar. I suspect that more will need to be done in the UK than that figure. Um, and proportionately similar um, efforts will be need to be made in Ireland. And, and it, it's the, the list of things that we can do um, is fairly well known, fairly well established. You know, there's the education training support that people need. There's the bridge from one type of job to another. Um, but most importantly, I think it goes back to the first part of our conversation. The best thing that you can do for jobs is to run your economy hot. Mm. And um, okay. we, we, we've learned this time and time again. Yes, education and training, support while people are unemployed, all of those things are things that need to be done. But the most impactful thing that you can do for unemployment is to generate rapid rates of economic growth to just pull people into the labor market naturally. 
Um, all of the things need to be done. But, um, if we, but if we don't do all of those things, then we do risk these people, unfortunately, being left behind for far too long. So that points to another point, uh, another point you made, which is that, you know, governments perhaps might be worried about their deficits, perhaps might be thinking of reining in spending or increasing taxes. And indeed, I know that's a part of the debate in the UK now ahead of today's announcement. But you're saying you're saying don't do it too early. Keep going for the moment. Absolutely. And I think that we, we in the UK, they learned that that austerity post financial crisis ultimately became self-defeating the economy just never recovered in a way that it could and should have done from from the financial crisis. Um, the, the, the thing about the, the, the deficit and the debt thing is that, that, that they have become so big everywhere. Um, it's, mm. gone, it's just about to go over. We think it has gone over 100% of GDP in the UK, for example. You know, the, the original Maastricht definition of mm. acceptable debt levels were at 60%. Those rules have been sure. suspended, of course. Um, yeah. And we know that other theoreticians have told us don't have these sorts of debt levels because you'll get into trouble. And um, so far, so good. They haven't led to trouble. And that's because of what the, cent- the central banks are essentially funding or buying, printing the money to, to, to buy this, this debt. And I think that's likely to continue because I think central banks are going to behave very differently now after this crisis compared to the last one. Um, mm-hmm. And they are deliberately and certainly led by the Federal Reserve. They're, they're, they're in the vanguard of this. And I think the Bank of England is not too far behind. And I think even the ECB could be drag kicking and screaming into this role is that they actually want to generate some inflation now. They want to actually hit their inflation targets, which they haven't done for a very long time, at the very least. And mm-hmm. um, so that I think they, that, that means they will be buying the debt that the finance ministers want to issue for as long as for, for, the, for the foreseeable future. But if we don't get the – let's turn the argument on its head. If people think that I'm wrong and that people like Rishi Sunak and our own finance minister and finance ministers elsewhere will raise taxes and, <clears throat> and cut spending relatively early on in the next cycle, um, and, thro- and I think that will throttle growth, what that will mean is that um, I think then you do have problems that we, that we don't have them at the moment and they're not in, the, in our immediate future, but that's when the debt will come back to bite you um, and, and it could well become a problem in terms of its servicing um, and, and uh, paying it back and all those other things that we worry about. If you don't, the argument is a very simple one. If you don't grow your way out of this debt problem, mm-hmm. if you don't have a little bit of inflation to get to, to actually ease the pain of this debt burden mm-hmm. that is coming down the pipe, um, then we are going to have a, a fiscal crisis um, in one or many countries. Just as a by the by, um, we haven't had much inflation for since the last crisis, really, and interest rates have remained on the floor as a result. Does more inflation grad- at some stage mean more higher interest rates? Under normal circumstances, it would, and um, but these are not normal circumstances. We've effectively got, um, in the jargon, yield curve control, or in another piece of jargon, financial repression, in that the... the, the Interest rates are being controlled from the very short term to the very long term um, by central banks. And they can do this more or less for as long as they want to. Um, It depends on how much inflation they're prepared to tolerate. But interest rates really are not going to go up in any material way until central banks decide they are. And that decision will come, I suspect, some way down, far off in the future, when inflation has risen to a level that they can no longer tolerate. 
But the big change is that the level of inflation that they are prepared to tolerate is much higher than it used to be. And that means that whereas in the, if you remember after the financial crisis, the ECB, for example, couldn't wait to raise interest rates. Mm. And they did so, and we now think very inappropriately, and caused a double-dip recession in the euro area, mm. or at least a, a big part of it in, 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 in the sort of 2011-2012 period. That sort of mistake, I think the lessons have been learned, and they're not going to do that. So I think this period of ultra-low interest rates is here for a long period of time. But as you say, it could well be that during that period we see something that we haven't seen for a very long time, and that's inflation start to pick up. Hmm. Interesting. And I guess we could see, we're likely to see, as you kind of hinted at earlier as well, structural changes in the in the way the economy operates. Um, I mean, you talked about the economic cycle there and turning upwards, but there will surely, given the extent of the pandemic, be changes in the in the structure of the economy as well, changes the way people live their lives, spend their money, whether people are going to work or not, whether people feel safe to go to pubs. Um, how they eat in restaurants, how they do their shopping, all those kind of things. It's, it's, there's a lot to play for, isn't there? There is. And obviously, we don't know how, how these changes are going to work themselves through, what shape they are likely to take. I talk broadly about a pendulum swinging all the way mm. in one direction and then coming back. That, that's about as precise as I think that we can be. We need to be very careful about spurious precision when it comes to, to forecasting at the best of times. You know, we know all, all that debate about will we go back to work as, as we, will our working practices go back? What does that mean for our city centres? Um, will we consume in the same way? Will we be as willing to get on an aeroplane and, and fly off here and there? Um, I suspect some of the changes that we've seen are permanent. Um, mm. I know um, another Irish Times columnist, David McWilliams, talked about the end of business travel in his column last weekend. Mm. And I think that was a well-made point. Um, and I think that's hard-headed uh, finance speaking there, because what, what companies will have noticed is that they've been, or, or a lot of companies will have noticed, is that they've been able to function perfectly well, not just with people not going into the office, but with a huge numbers of their staff not getting on airplanes. And so they can save money on both counts. Now, yes, there will, there will be some business travel. The pension will swing back a bit. Many of us will go back to working in, in the offices, but it won't go back to the way that it was before. I think that's a point well made. And I, and I think those and other similar changes are coming that we have to deal with. Yeah, an interesting one. Um, I was talking to somebody earlier in the week about whether we'd all be in... Um, pubs this time next year and uh i suppose three months ago you might have said probably not uh but given the vaccine and the fact that certainly by the middle of next year most of the population will be vaccinated perhaps um perhaps people will be be running back to the pub and queuing at the aircraft gate etc etc yeah i think the critical thing will be will be the fact that um, these vaccines not only prevent COVID, but they seem to prevent this latest one, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. I think the critical piece of data, or one of the critical pieces of data from that, is that it prevented people from, it stopped people being hospitalized. Not a single person who got the jab ended up in hospital. And once the hospitalized, once the hospital's empty of COVID patients, which means that at worst, this becomes a, a nasty or some form of influenza type symptoms. I think it disappears from the headlines. Wouldn't that be great? Mm. <laughs> Is the policy response to an extent uh, a kind of reaction to the, the mistakes made after the last crisis? I mean, we're 10 years on. 
next weekend from the uh, from the Irish bailout from those terrible days, and we remember that crisis which hit in two thousand and eight. Uh, and led the economy into a sharp downturn from which we really didn't recover, I think, till 2013 or 14. So it was a very long recession. So have have some lessons been learned from the last crisis, do you think? In some quarters, yes. I worry about whether or not they've been fully learned everywhere. Yeah. But you, yeah. you, you'll recall, Cliff, that um, the, some academics were writing papers about expansionary fiscal contraction back then, that the way in which you expand your economy is to get your budget deficit under control as quickly as possible. I think yeah. the lesson that that is a nonsense has been learned, and mm. particularly the circumstances in which it's a spectacular nonsense. Um, the only way, really, that uh, fiscal contraction can lead to an economy growing, the circumstances that Ireland found itself in 20 or 30 years ago, was, mm. was when, if you do cut the deficit, your interest rates fall from eye-wateringly high levels to mm. low levels, we clearly can't do that. Um, mm. Interest rates are effectively zero now. So the only thing that fiscal consolidation or contraction or austerity will do to your economy is, is drive it into the ground. And I think that key lesson has been learned. And it's remarkable to see the IMF, the, 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 the old guardians of fiscal orthodoxy, mm. orthodoxy that would have um, urged governments at every opportunity to cut the deficit, is now mm. urging government everywhere to expand the deficit. And it's really interesting to see the IMF as well, not only saying it's time for fiscal expansion, even though debt levels are high, but it's actually telling governments um, where to spend the money. Um, It's Mm. telling it to do the usual infrastructure thing, broadband, ports, schools, hospitals, and and, and all of the usual list of suspects. But it's talking about the green agenda, which I think is going to be incredibly, it already is important, it's going to be incredibly important going forward, not least from an economic growth point of view, because the IMF, along with a number of other economists, have changed their minds about uh, the green agenda. They used to think it was likely to be growth negative, growth destroying, that, that you know, economic activity would have to stop in certain circumstances or would have to shrink, and that it would be bad for growth and jobs. They now think that spending on the green agenda, investing in wind, investing in alternative sources of energy, building greener cars, um, designing better batteries, uh, thinking about carbon capture, uh, thinking about hydrogen actually as an alternative energy source, all of that actually could be growth positive. And that if if governments lead the way in terms of spending in these areas and encourage the private sector as well to invest, that this could be um, part of this growth boom that, that I was talking about earlier on. And given the government's need to spur growth, um, there could be the coming together of two priorities in one. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, a, it's another reason to think, to, or another reason to be optimistic about growth uh, going forward, because all of, the, all of the interests are lining up. And I talked about vested interests in my column, and that sometimes that's a useful way to thinking about the future. Where do the vested interests lie? Mm. And you can see when you have, you know, Fiscal guardians like the IMF telling governments to spend, telling them what to spend on. We have the desire of all of us to just get out there and be in the world. It all seems to be coming together to me for for at least uh, something of an economic boom. Uh, Let's hope you're right, Chris. I I can't let you go without asking you uh, your other expert subject, Brexit. Oh, yes. Um, We're... we're, we're Every week, we're told, is a crucial week, and every week passes uh, with talks still going on, but nothing, nothing, nothing emerging. What, what, how do you read it? 
I think a deal is more likely than not. Um, and, and maybe that's me being too rational. Um, I have blown hot and cold on this. Um, yeah. And there have been times when I've been pretty certain that, that a deal wouldn't be done. It, the, the way I read the runes, the, 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 the tea leaves, if you like, out of Brussels at the moment is that a, a deal looks more likely than not. I think things like Dominic Cummings being kicked out of Downing Street is consistent with that. The hardliners are going and there may be something of a, an outbreak of, something that resembles rationality in, in, in Downing Street. But, but, this, but the, the thing that worries me is that somebody, and it's, it has to be Johnson, actually, the way the politics of this works, is going to have to, to, to swallow some pride to make a compromise that they say yeah. that they, they haven't made. So I would say, yeah, a deal. But the key thing for everybody to realize is that the deal that, that, that is being talked about a year ago or a while ago, we would have described, you and I would have described as a hard Brexit. So what, we, what we're talking about is either no deal, the famous yeah. WTO rules, or a hard Brexit. That's the yeah. choice that's on the table. Yeah, the soft, the soft, the soft option is, is long gone. Long gone. That ship sailed a long time ago. Yeah. Okay. Great, Chris Johns. If we get a vaccine and a Brexit deal. Um, to 2021 will indeed be looking better. Uh, thank you for joining us as ever. Cheers, Cliff. Okay, thanks, Chris. That's all we have time for this week. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon. Until next time, goodbye, and thanks very much for listening. Listener.